Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition for the last 30 years. It's Rosie on the House. We're your toe-tapping Saturday morning wake-up call. Good morning, Arizona. One fair warning. In today's 7 a.m. broadcast, you are going to need to grab your thinking cap. As you climb out of the bed, shake off your bedhead. You better grab your thinking cap because you're going to need it today. I've been looking for this guest for about six years. I I thought I turned over every rock I could to find someone that could talk to me about this subject. And my good friend, Carolyn Sikowski, finally found him. Carolyn is joining us in studio this morning. Carolyn, thank you so much for your efforts on this regard. My pleasure. All right. Of course, Romy's here, my son and co-host, as always. Uh, Sweet Jennifer is out, but we got Gary D., the engineer, in place. And we have special guest, Dr. Royer Arnold Windhorst. He is ASU's own cyborg. (laughs) (laughs) And he is back. (laughs) He is back. (laughs) Okay, now wait, wait, wait. Now listen, listen, folks. I want y'all to get serious now, okay? Climb out of bed, pour that first cup of really strong coffee, because the topic today is the source and origin of gravity. But to get there, we have to talk about the collision of two neutron stars just a year ago discovered by the Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories. (laughs) 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 And that's why we've got Dr. Roger in this morning. What is... A laser inferometer gravitational wave observatory, Doctor. And thank you for coming in this morning. I appreciate the fact that you just completed a trip to Europe. You're still on East, East uh, Europe time zone, so that helped you this morning a little bit, didn't it? It, it helps, Rosie. Thank you so much for having me here. Also, this strong coffee helped. Uh, yeah. So LIGO is not Legoland, right? Okay, right. It okay. is... Um, It is a gravitational experiment uh, designed uh, by the National Science Foundation and a very large number of people, um, including Kip Thorne from the movie Interstellar, who was the brainchild behind this, to discover the merging of black holes or neutron stars, which produce these beautiful gravitational ripples, as if you were throwing a rock in the pond and little ripples are produced in the water, well, black holes or neutron stars can also do this with space-time. You let them collide, and they produce these ripples that you can observe. We've built these two observatories 2,000 miles apart? Yeah. 1,800, 2,000? Right. One in, in Washington State, one, the other one in Louisiana, and they are L-shaped, two perfectly perpendicular lasers, three kilometers um, long in each direction, and they measure um, through what we call interferometric techniques whether the laser signal arrives from both tunnels, which are perpendicular, at the same time 
after they were emitted at the same time. And if there is such a gravitational wave ripple going through the L-shaped detector, it will produce a delay that you can measure with great effort. And after very careful calibration, the 18-wheeler on the freeway nearby will cause a vibration that you need to filter out. And so will the fruit fly that landed on your lunch in the next room. And so all of this gets filtered out, and they do it simultaneously in Louisiana and in Washington State. And once they discover a ripple that's ever so slightly delayed in time because of the time delay between the two locations, 2,000 miles apart, um, at the right frequency, with the right profile, the right shape, they conclude, hmm, there must have been a ripple in space-time here, which can only do be due to the merging of two black holes or two neutron stars. <laughs> well, I don't want to infer that my Cajun roots are stupid, but I know I have no relatives working there. <laughs> 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 Gary D., you're no. from Lafayette. No. You're, you're Cajun root. You got any family working my, there? My brother has a Ph.D. <laughs> from LSU. It has nothing to do with that. <laughs> nothing to do with that. Okay, I, I want to. Uh, we, we're waking people up here, and we've already got them, like, scratching their head. Let's back up and reduce the conversation to something really simple. A train and a stopwatch. <laughs> e equals mc squared. Okay, I can get in the study of physics in my engineering studies at ASU back in the 70s, I get E equals mc squared, and I get calculus, and I get first and second and third derivatives. I get it because somebody else thought it up and can teach it to me. What kind of a head, what kind of a cranium creates that theory? Well, it was Einstein himself, and he started out with this concept of the train. Actually, he used hypothetical, um, um, well, he used trains and elevators as a thought experiment to um, um, explain it to, to people like me. Basically, <laughs> get to the concept um, that Newton struggled with uh, several centuries before. If something travels at the speed of light, the simple laws of mechanics, the laws of Newton, don't apply so well anymore. And Einstein then postulated that the speed of light needs to be constant for nature to be logical, consistent. It's a very high speed, 186,000 miles per second, 300,000 kilometers a second. But it's a constant, it's a, it's a finite number. And it's the same number for all observers. So whether you're sitting still in that train or whether the train is moving, that distant light source will emit light that you receive in either one of the two trains at the same speed. And for this to work, when one of the trains goes at high speed, it needs to slow its clock and reduce its length. This is called time dilation and Lorentz contraction. This is one of the properties of space-time that's not obvious or logical, but if you write it down in Einstein's equations, it makes sense, and it is what preserved the speed of light to be constant in all occasions for all observers, and that was his premise. This kind of has to be true for the cosmos to make sense. My overwhelming conviction in the study of physics, and I, again, I haven't touched a physics textbook since about 1975, but how consistent the laws of you could predict the weak and strong point of horizontal beams just knowing the material it was made of the thickness the span the size the dimension and it was absolutely perfectly predictable 
every time. And that is astounding. It's remarkable, isn't it? <clears throat> and it, it, it all goes back to what I'm, my, my, my lifetime search is get someone who can explain to me the origin of gravity. Because without gravity, you got none of it. That, well, without gravity, um, <laughs> life is a little different. You know, zero gravity, I've never been in orbit, but if you're in orbit, you have zero gravity, and um, it, life is different. We're all subject to gravity. We know that the Earth produces gravity. What is not so obvious, and Einstein was struggling with this too, um, but he did capture it right in his uh, general the theory of relativity. The one we just talked about with the railroad trains was the special theory of relativity that says the speed of light has to be constant and the same for all observers irrespective of their own velocity. The general theory of relativity says that all sources of mass such as atoms, protons, uh, neutrons, molecules, but also energy, which is a source of mass. I promised you, Rosie, yeah. that I wouldn't use any equations. No, do break, it. break my promise do, here. Do, do. I, I'll use the only one that everybody <laughs> knows. E equals mc squared. The energy is equals to the mass times the square of the speed of light. The speed of light, as we just discussed, is a very large number. You take the square, it's an even larger number. So a very tiny amount of mass corresponds to a very large energy. We know that. That's also the, the premise of atomic bombs and atomic energy. Um, in that concept, Einstein basically rewrote the equations of Newton to not only have mass, but also energy be a source of gravity. So if I took all the mass out of this room but filled it with an enormous heat, this room would still have gravity. A tiny amount, but the gravity would still be there. So take all the mass in the universe, all the light, all the energy, that's your source of gravity. And what that does is it makes the path of the light not go straight, but curve around the mass um, like an airplane when it travels around the Earth. And travels that's in a curved path. why the National Science Foundation invested the most amount of money in any project they've ever invested by building the LIGO. Li Li LIGO, yeah. The LIGO laboratories, approximately, I don't, I'm guessing, but it's got to be 1,800, 2,000 miles apart. Yeah, thereabouts. So that you could measure the time differential between this curve, this gravitational curve moving throughout the universe, to the, to the exactness of what? Less than the size of a, a, a proton. It's about 10 to the minus 19th of a meter. Okay, now come on, can. Yeah, it's, I, it's very can anyone tiny. in this room yeah. even begin to grasp that? <laughs> the only thing I'm grasping is the train part because <laughs> my dad was an engineer yeah, yeah. on the Southern Pacific. Gary's still waiting for his coffee in the yeah. in the sleeper back there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Wow. So they're measuring this gravitational wave to the exactness of a proton. Yeah, smaller than that, actually. And um, the reason that works is because the uh, laser is, by design, so strictly monochromatic, meaning it's only one single color, one single wavelength that gets emitted. And when that shifts, you will know. Um, it's, it's, we call it a Doppler shift or a redshift. And so when that wavelength um, is, is off the mark, um, <coughs> your instrument can tell and so when a 
you have this big L-shaped tunnel with the two lasers shining at a common piece where all the light with the timing information in there because it's pulsed um, in some way um, arrives but it doesn't arrive at the expected time then you know something must have happened and if it was not the 18 wheeler next door or the fruit fly landing on your lunch then it had to be the rocky mountains well <laughs> it it could be a gravitational wave now how will you notice the gravitational wave has a specific pattern imagine you throw a rock in the pond and you see this beautiful ring-shaped pattern that eventually damps out it is a little bit like that okay um it well, goes in the reverse order but it, it looks like a ripple in the pond and when you observe two ripples one in louisiana and one in Washington State that look almost exactly the same, but they're a few milliseconds apart. They say, ah, this is interesting. All this right. could be a real one. We're going to take a short break. When we yeah. get back, I brought a deck of cards, and we're going to see if Dr. Windhorse can play fish. <laughs> <laughs> the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Now, did you say these lasers are three kilometers? About that. Yeah. Uh, that's like 10,000 feet almost. Yeah, that's that's a, a, that's almost long, two well, miles. That's how long the path of the laser travels, yeah, in each direction. Oh, the laser itself is yeah, No, no, long. the laser itself is, is a box the size of this table, so it's pretty powerful. But, I was yeah. wondering why I couldn't find it on Google Earth on Livingston, <laughs> Louisiana. Where's this two-mile laser? i got to yeah. see this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a tunnel, a tunnel with a laser on each side, and in, in the L-shaped connection, the two laser signals meet, and they have to normally, without the absence of interference, they have to produce a pattern uh, that looks like a bell curve, and um, you know it's a stable pattern. It's a light spot on a on a table, so to speak. I, I'm going to try to be smart here. Oh, okay. Okay. You you say the laser's in a tunnel, L shaped. Well, there's two tunnels. They're uh, the shape <laughs> of an L, and they connect in the middle where the two dot the dashes of the L connect, and that's where the signal gets combined from the two lasers. I see. Okay, so. The superducting, uh, superconducting super collider, which I remember in Texas, which was that. Uh, are you familiar with yeah, the yeah, tunnel? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same construction or principle? Well, or? that was a circular tunnel, um, many miles in uh, radius, and that was actually not finished, as you may recall. But that's the right. Europeans built one in in Geneva, underneath France and Switzerland, and that's called the Large Hadron Collider, similar concept, and that worked, and that works with magnets where the uh, electron and proton beams get um, in a circular path, accelerated to very high speeds, a fraction of the speed of light, and then they collide and they do their measurements of atomic, subatomic particles. Um, the, the linear tunnels of LIGO, um, with each arm of the L-shaped uh, tunnel about three kilometers long, um, <coughs> is being used to shine the laser in a vacuum, constant temperature chamber as, as quietly, as still as possible towards its target, which is a mirror that combines the two laser signals. And since there's a timing, um, a timestamp on the signal, you can measure the light travel time from the laser to the, the measurement device. And it has to be the same for both arms, by design, um, unless 
a wave, and, and not a, a water wave in the pond, but a gravitational wave intersects one arm before it intersects the other and produces a ripple, and then a fraction of a second later does the same in the other station, 1,800 miles apart. I mean, if, if house cleaning leaves a little Windex on one of the laser lenses, it could just throw the whole thing off. Yeah, that's not good. The janitor is well trained. He wouldn't do that. <laughs> if you've just joined us, you know somebody joined us in the break, and they're waking up to Rosie on now. Says, "Where has Rosie taken the show today?" We're on the very bridge between mind and matter, and you've heard me talk about mind and matter, like when it comes to home improvement projects, like removing sautia tile, which is beyond horrible. It's the worst thing you could ever want to tackle, but if you don't mind, it don't matter. But we're talking it on a little bit deeper level today with Dr. Roger Windhorst. Now, look, let me just scan his resume. Listen to me really close, okay? We've got a Bachelor of Astronomy from the University of Leiden, followed by a Master's, followed by a Ph.D. That's all by 1984. He's been to the California Institute of Technology, Carnegie Observatory. And he's currently at ASU. And you've been at ASU for a while. Yeah, almost 32 years. It's That's been a incredible. while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, like dude, I, I called you a cyborg. About a billion I, seconds. I, 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 I called you, yeah, I knew he'd do that to me. I called you the Sun Devil Cyborg. But what do they call you on campus? What's your title? Uh, the Astro Nerd. Uh, no, I. <laughs> You're at the School um, of Earth and Space Exploration yeah. at Arizona State I, I'm a professor there, a regents professor, yeah. So I teach astrophysics and I, I do Hubble for living. And now we're building a sequel to Hubble. But gravity is a hobby of mine and I teach it in the class, including relativity when we get to the upper division. Well, I told y'all you would need your thinking hats this morning and you're going to need to fill up that second cup of coffee. Because when we get back, we're going to be start talking about colliding black, st- holes, black hole, colliding black holes, which are giant gravitational suction forces located mm-hmm. periodically throughout the universe. And when two of these giant vacuums collide, what happens? And where do once you're sucked into one, what's on the other side? Where where do you go? What's over there? I'm I'm going to Abita Springs. Y'all can stay in Livingston. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you get a wormhole and come out in Washington State. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. All right. Rejoining the conversation here with Dr. Windhorst from ASU. Uh, the, the, the titles on his resume are all so long with multi-syllable words I can't even pronounce them. Incredible human being. Romy, who do you have coming in at eight? How are you going to top this? Sweet corn. <laughs> We're going to talk about <laughs> sweet corn. See, you need gravity. You got to eat. You need gravity to grow corn, too. Yeah. And you, you need do. corn to grow in rows so it pollinates itself in the wind. And if you didn't have gravity when you were harvesting it, it would all float up in the sky and go to a black hole. Maybe. <laughs> That's not Maybe. who we're growing the corn for. <laughs> all right. We're here with Dr. Windhorse, and we're talking. The, the real reason I wanted to get him in the studio was to talk about this thing that absolutely 
confounds me. We have this naturally occurring phenomenon throughout the universe with apparently different epicenters called gravity. We have an epicenter. We have a we have a, a kind of a focus at the core of Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Then we must have a gravitational core at the sun. A bigger one, yes. A bigger one. 330,000 times bigger, yeah. And then we've got these gravitational holes in space that act like giant universal vacuum cleaners that eat everything in their path. Like our budget deficit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that hurt. Oh, man. Well, it only grows. (laughs) It only grows. Man. As we say in cosmology, gravity sucks. So (laughs) who? Yeah. So, I mean, how do you even develop a theory that a black hole exists, and then how do you validate that theory? Einstein had a number of things that he really disliked. One of his predictions was that if you put gravity uh, or or matter and energy in a small enough volume, the uh, um, radius um, at which uh, even something going as fast as a beam of light can no longer escape because the escape velocity would be larger than the speed of light. That radius is called the black hole radius. It was actually somebody else who made the prediction using his theory. It's called the Schwarzschild radius. When you get, when you take the Earth, put all mass in a, a volume the size of a marble, a big marble, then it would be a black hole. Even light could not escape from its surface. We can escape from the surface of the Earth with a space shuttle or a rocket as long as we reach the velocity of uh, 11 kilometers a second. You need 8 kilometers a second to get into orbit, which is about 5 miles a second, and you need about 1.4 times as much to escape. If you put all that mass in a much smaller volume, the escape velocity is theoretically the speed of light, meaning that even a light ray could not escape from there, and therefore it's a black hole. Einstein detested that, but... He knew that his theory predicted it, and he hoped it wasn't right. Unfortunately, he was right. And we've been able to validate it. Recently, we have with LIGO. And what LIGO saw is two rather massive black holes, each about 30 times the mass of the sun, merging. Okay, wait, wait, wait. wait, The sun is, correct me, but the sun's a million times the size of Earth, right? Yeah, it's a small star. Okay, so an average. So star. Earth, we know. Yeah, uh, I've I've been to the Mississippi River. Yeah. I've I've been to the East Coast. It's, it's the, big. It's big. Yeah, but the sun's a million times bigger than well, the Earth. Well, it's three hundred thousand times heavier. It's only a hundred times bigger in radius. Okay, all right. Yeah, but so that's then about these a, you know, black holes are. How much bigger than the sun? In terms of mass, they're up to thirty times the mass of the sun. <laughs> However. Are they far their away? Their radius <laughs> is no bigger than from here to L.A., so they're really not that large. But you pile up the 30 times the mass of the sun, which is like, you know, um, uh, more than a, a million times the mass of the Earth, in, in sorry, 10 million times the mass of the Earth, in, in a very small volume that's no bigger than Arizona. Now, that's a, a, a reasonably massive black hole. We call it the stellar mass black hole. And they are caused by stars, unlike the sun. We're lucky to live around a star that's four and a half billion years old. It probably got another four or five billion years to live, so we're good there. 
um, as, as long as we're careful with the Earth. But if you were living on a planet around a massive star, say 50, 60 solar masses, that star won't live longer than two and a half million years. So, uh, you know, as a planet, you won't get very old because that star will very quickly consume its hydrogen and helium and then it will explode into a supernova. And in most cases, it will leave behind a black hole that's about half the original mass. Okay, so yeah. we've got a lot of people still confused, probably on a third cup of coffee right now. Saying, uh -huh. And yeah. so, so why the investment in researching all of this? How... How does it change the oatmeal I'm having for breakfast? Well, it's probably what it will change is what you do after breakfast. This morning after breakfast, I was driving over here, and uh, I kind of knew where to go, but I turned on my GPS just to make sure I get here on time and at the right location. I more or less made it right at the right location, and that was due to GPS. These satellites around the Earth that sent my cell phone this signal that can calculate then where I am within a couple of feet. Uh, it's Very incredible. impressive. And that's what Google cars and, and, and uh, Uber cars that have no drivers in the future and even today uh, lean on. Uh, these satellites go around the Earth at 8 kilometers a second. And that signal that your cell phone digests needs to be corrected for special relativity, right? Because they're going at, uh, the satellites go at a rate that's not incredibly small compared to the speed of light. It's a small fraction, but it's a measurable fraction. And so this causes a time delay that you need to take into account uh, when you calculate your GPS position. If you refuse to do that, if you ignore the relativity, you get your position on Earth wrong. Do, so, do you have any hobbies? Uh, yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> Astrophysics. <laughs> and music. Uh, music, music. Because, okay, yeah, classical, classical music. music. Very good. Touche. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I, could, I could take you into a black hole with questions about this. But what I want to I move the conversation because we're running a little bit tighter on time we need you like for the whole four-hour show yeah. uh but i'm gonna lose you here in the next few minutes um your current project is overseeing the launch of the next generation of the hubble telescope yeah, it's it's the science part that i um, am involved in to make sure that the the new telescope nasa is building with its european and canadian partners the so-called james webb space telescope the sequel to hubble which will be launched in about two and a half years. I thought it was supposed to launch like next month. Yeah, that was the original idea in October. Uh, that was the plan we okay. had in 2010, 2011. We stuck with that plan for a long time. But okay. in the last year, they discovered a few manufacturing issues that needed Oops. to be resolved. Yeah, not as serious as the original flaw that Hubble had that they fixed with the space shuttle and the astronauts, but something that you need to fix on the ground before you can launch it. So the Hubble yeah. is... Uh, orbiting at what it elevation? Go it goes at 360 nautical miles above Earth, around the Earth, every 96 minutes. That's 15 sunrises and 15 sunsets a day. Okay, now where are y'all sending the Jim Webb telescope? We're going in an orbit um, that goes with the Earth around the sun every year, five times further away than the moon. So we launch towards the moon, go past the moon, sit in what we call a second Lagrange point. It's a semi-stable point in the Earth-Sun system where you can float around the sun with the Earth 
and the sun and the earth as well as the moon will always be on the same side which means if you get this giant sunscreen we got this tennis court size sunscreen that they're developing that's the one that had the manufacturing issue um, the telescope is always literally cool because the earth and the sun and the moon all sources of, of main sources of energy and heat are on the other side of the sunscreen so you're not going to send the space shuttle up to change a spark plug oh no no no, we, we have a different <laughs> paradigm here. We make sure everything works 100%. And so we've moved the launch, but we're well, not we. Y'all yeah, have not, moved the NASA, launch back yeah. a couple of years, NASA. Yeah, two and a half years. And yeah. so it's going to launch in two and a half years. What is the – now, Hubble has lasted like twice its expectancy, right? Yeah, it was built for 15 years. It was launched in 1990, in April 1990. Um, and it, here we are 28 years later. It's working just fine. The last space shuttle mission in May of 2009 put in tons of spare parts, you know, gyroscopes, batteries, reaction wheels, what have you not, and new instruments, and it's working just fine. And it got another couple of years to go. We hope to the early, mid-2020s. So your new paradigm with Webb, where it won't be able to be serviced, what life expectancy are we programming into this vehicle? It, it's a minimum of five years. Okay. Um, the goal is 10 years, and we put propellant, which is gas, on board for 14 years. So with luck, we can get more than a decade out of it. What, what are we going to – what do we hope to use this tool for? Well, it's two and a half times the size of Hubble, and it's more than 100 times uh, more sensitive at, uh, at certain near mid-infrared wavelengths than Hubble is, which means it, it's literally a very cool telescope that can observe – things that are either so distant that the light only shines in the infrared, which would be the very first galaxies and the first stars and the first black holes, all the way from back there 13 point uh, some billion years ago to stars in our own galaxy nearby, only a few tens of light years away with planets like the Earth orbiting them, where we can observe the chemical composition of the atmospheres of these Earth-like planets and see if they have oxygen and carbon dioxide, maybe even ozone in them. So are, are we funding this just to fuel people like your curiosity? No, it, it, it is to, um, it's not just built for, for, for me or the astronomers. It's it, like Hubble being a many decade project that has captured the imagination oh. of all of mankind. Who, who would have thought that it'd be this good? It's worth, it's worth just the photo. You could go to nasa.com, yeah. or, or is right. it .org, I think, Yeah, and and just see the thousands of images. I mean, you, I, I could just sit there for hours That's and, right. and just scroll through those images. It's, it's like, I, I warn you, if you go to hubblesite.org, it's like taking a sip out of a fire hydrant. Oh. It's, 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 it has been absolutely beautiful. And web will be like that and then some. Okay, so inquiring minds need to know. Who's we Jim need, We need to know where we come from, right? Okay. How many other planets are there like the Earth that could habit life? We're not going to find E.T., but we're going <laughs> to find which planets might be suitable for life comparable to our own. Who's uh, Jim Webb? James Webb was the second NASA administrator who, under JFK in the early 60s, uh, pioneered the moon landings when Kennedy said, we will go to the moon. Apparently, in the conversation in the, in the White House Oval Office, he didn't exactly say that to Mr. Webb before he gave the speech. He, he used a word I can't repeat here, but he said, you know, 
I don't really care about going to the moon. I just want to beat the Russians. And then Mr. Webb said, no, Mr. President, if we go to the moon, we got to find out what's there and where we come from. So Mr. Webb actually invented space science, right? All we have done since then, including Hubble and all the Mars missions and what have you, not everything in between. Mr. Webb was the one who, who seeded that. And, and who was Hubble? Hubble was the astronomer in the 1920s who um, showed that the universe is expanding, something Einstein had predicted, but also wrote off as something he couldn't believe in the early uh, mid-1910s because we thought the universe was static back then. And Einstein put in a fudge factor to make the expansion <laughs> go away. And then Hubble, 15 years later, discovered the expansion, and the rest is history. We know okay. we live in an expanding universe, and Einstein later corrected himself, so I should have never put in the fudge factor. And universe is naturally expanding in my field equations. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Doctor, we're going to come back and wrap this segment up. I don't know how we're going to wrap this segment up, but we're going to wrap it up in yeah. just a couple of minutes when we okay. get back. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Well, we're still trying to decide what to call the 7 o'clock hour. Romy came up with a couple great ideas this week. We generally refer to it as Arizona People, Places, and Events. Uh, Sanderson Ford sponsors the hour. We're talking, however, today about a place... Even your F-250 can't go. <laughs> One of the few places your F-250 can't make it, we're talking about space with Dr. Roger Windhorst from ASU, astrophysicist. I got him in here because I wanted to talk about the origin of gravity. I don't know. With my faith-based upbringing, no matter how many mathematical formulas stand between today and the origin of the universe, there still has to be an origin. Mm -hmm. Yep. Does the size of the universe, the age of the universe, humble you, awe you, or inspire you? Well, it, it certainly humbles and, and awes, but also inspires. It does all of the it above. Does. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's uh, mind-boggling, literally. And in my simple little carpenter mind, I mean, I have a hard time I can do it, but I, I have a hard time laying out a compound miter cut on a truss when I'm framing a conventional frame roof. Mm -hmm. And I start thinking about E equals MC squared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm, how does somebody get to that point? And I'm thinking sooner or later, no matter how far you take it back, you're faith-based no matter what you believe right? Uh, because it's unknown. Right. So you're taking a step out there, in faith. There are assumptions and steps in faith. There are assumptions, yes. absolutely. Yep. There's got to be some intelligent origin mm -hmm. to start the whole thing. Yeah, I certainly hope hope so and believe so. I mean, you you were stating in the break that we only observe five percent of the known universe. Of the visible universe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's mind-blowing. Where's the rest of the 95%? Well, it's dark matter and dark energy, we think. As I said, it's two Nobel Prizes away from us knowing what that is. But we don't know what 95% of the universe is made up of. We know it's there, but we just don't know. We have no clue what it is. It's omnipresent. 
well, yeah, because the universe looks the same in every direction. So this dark matter and dark energy ought to be everywhere, yeah. It, it's got to be as close to eternal as anything we can know about, right? Well, this is the thing about dark energy. It, it, it makes the stock market look like <laughs> uh, uh, amateurish, right? It's pure exponential expansion forever. That's what it causes. It causes the universe not only to expand, but to expand exponentially, the, 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 the stockbroker's dream, forever, <laughs> forever, after it started 13.8 billion years ago. So there was a definitive start, but there is no end to it. I think a few early Bitcoin believers caught a small fraction of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then they lost yeah, it. And then they lost it, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Only 5% of the universe is observable. That's what we see as visible matter, including uh, wavelengths that are, you know, different from what the eye can see. But that's that's what we see. Four and a half, five percent is is visible matter. The rest is there in terms of the E equals M C squared. It's there energy wise and matter wise, but we have no clue what it is. And if I can jump on a rocket right now and travel the speed of sound, how long well, am I going to travel to the end of the known universe? Well, I. I one Prefer direction. to travel at the speed of light. Then it would take only 13.8 billion years. If you travel at the speed of sound, it would take a little longer. Oh, did I say sound? <laughs> it will take okay. eternity. <laughs> <laughs> so the rocket yeah. ship and I would be together for 13 billion years, traveling 186,000 miles per second. Yeah, bring some extra health bars to eat because it takes a long time. Yeah, And, and it may be bigger than that because the light beyond there may not have even reached us That's yet, right? right? It, it's exponentially expanding, so you, you won't get to the end. It will take forever, literally. Okay, Romy, yeah. take us to sweet corn. <laughs> Wait, I have a question. Do astrophysicists watch Star Trek and laugh? Uh, I, I have this debate with my wife. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, um, she doesn't like that, but um, we find all the physical flaws in Star Trek. I like Star Trek, but I, I can't have my science hat on because they, they cut a few corners. <laughs> yeah. I can't watch Westerns. It drives me nuts. <laughs> I'd I love I, 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 I love uh, Val Kilmer as yeah. Doc Holliday, but you can't yeah. shoot three shots out of a double barrel shotgun <laughs> without reloading. That's right. Come on, so who's you, watching this? If you take my AST one eleven course, I'll give you extra credit if you find all the f physical mistakes in a movie like uh, Oh, cool. uh, Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> what is it they do that violates the laws of physics? Dr. Extra Ro credit for it. Dr. Roger Windhorst. Thanks. Romy, who you got coming up next hour? Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau. It is corn harvesting season. Arizona sweet corn is absolutely delicious and abundant. And we're going to talk about where you can get you some.